Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for August 9th through 15th, 2021. This is covering Doctrine and Covenants, section 88. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Well, hey. Hey, is that a bookmark for this section? Interesting. It looks like an olive leaf. Hmm. I wonder why that's there. I guess we'll find out. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 30 minutes, 37 seconds. That's interesting. I think that's the longest so far this year. Yeah, now still, that's not a whole lot to read for a week, but... Yeah, it is the longest we've had so far this year. What would it be if we broke it down daily? Four minutes, 22 seconds. And that's all for one section. Right. Don't let the one section fool you. Yeah. Now, for those of you who went through the Book of Mormon year, this is easy. You could totally (laughs) do this. Yeah, no problem. But this section not only has a lot of verses, but it is rich with teachings and doctrines. So it's very exciting. Mm Mm-hmm. And let's jump into that then. From the Institute Manual, we get this background. On December 27, 1832, the Prophet Joseph Smith met with several church leaders and other members in the translating room located upstairs in Newell K. Whitney's store in Kirtland, Ohio. He desired further divine instruction about the elders' duties and about how to build up Zion. As this meeting or conference began, The prophet explained that in order for revelation to be received, each person in the assembled group should exercise faith in God and be of one heart and mind. He proceeded to invite each person to take a turn praying aloud to know the Lord's will. The ensuing revelation was then dictated by Joseph Smith until 9 p.m. that evening, at which time they stopped for the night. The next morning, the group reassembled and prayed, and the remainder of the revelation was received. Later, on January 3, 1833, the prophet received additional revelation that was later added to the revelation he had received in December. These are verses 127 through 137. Beginning with the 1835 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, the revelation that was given on January 3, 1833, was added to the one received on December 27 through 28th. 1832, along with four more verses that were added at the end. The revelation given on December 27th through 28th, 1832, directed the saints to establish a school where church elders could be taught in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God, as well as temporal subjects, so that they would be prepared to preach the gospel. The revelation given on January 3, 1833, referred to this school as the School of the Prophets, suggesting that this school would be similar to the schools of the prophets in Old Testament times. The members of those schools were sometimes called the Sons of the Prophets and received instruction from Samuel, Elijah, and Elisha. Further, the saints were commanded to establish a house of God where the School of the Prophets was to be held. For many months before January 1833, church leaders in Missouri had directed accusations and expressed unkind feelings toward church leaders in Ohio. On January 11, 1833, 
Joseph Smith sent a letter to William W. Phelps in Independence, Missouri, and included a copy of the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants, section 88, verses 1 to 126, and perhaps the portion in verses 127 through 137, and explained, I send you the olive leaf, which we have plucked from the tree of life, the Lord's message of peace to us. For though our brethren in Zion indulge in feelings towards us, which are not according to the requirements of the new covenant, yet we have the satisfaction of knowing that the Lord approves of us and has accepted us and established his name in Kirtland for the salvation of the nations. Let me say to you, seek to purify yourselves and also all the inhabitants of Zion, lest the Lord's anger be kindled to fierceness. The brethren in Kirtland pray for you unceasingly, for knowing the terrors of the Lord, they greatly fear for you. The olive leaf and olive branch have long been recognized as symbols of peace in many cultures. It is possible that Joseph Smith labeled this revelation as an olive leaf to provide a sign to the brethren in Missouri that spiritual safety was to be found in living the gospel, just as Noah learned that it was safe to walk again on the earth after the dove he sent out returned with an olive leaf in its beak. Nice imagery. Very, very nice. So that's the olive leaf. Yeah, let's look for that today as we study. Let's start with verse 3. Wherefore, I now send upon you another comforter, even upon you, my friends, that it may abide in your hearts, even the Holy Spirit of promise, which other comforter is the same that I promised unto my disciples, as is recorded in the testimony of John. Now, the Institute Manual includes a quote from Elder David A. Bednar from the April 2007 General Conference, and he has this to say about the Spirit of Promise. Quote, The Holy Spirit of Promise is the ratifying power of the Holy Ghost. When sealed by the Holy Spirit of Promise, an ordinance, vow, or covenant is binding on earth and in heaven. Receiving this stamp of approval from the Holy Ghost is a result of faithfulness, integrity, and steadfastness in honoring gospel covenants in the process of time. However, this sealing can be forfeited through unrighteousness and transgression. Purifying and sealing by the Holy Spirit of promise constitute the culminating steps in the process of being born again. Close quote. Now, this topic of the Holy Spirit of promise is very interesting, considering what the Lord taught about the source of all light in these coming verses. And let's take a look at that, starting in verse 6. It says, He, this is referring to Jesus Christ, that ascended up on high, as also he descended below all things, in that he comprehended all things, that he might be in all and through all things, the light of truth, which truth shineth. This is the light of Christ, as also he is in the sun, and the light of the sun, and the power thereof by which it was made, as also he is in the moon, and is the light of the moon, and the power thereof by which it was made, as also the light of the stars, and the power thereof by which they were made and the earth also, and the power thereof, even the earth upon which you stand. And the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understandings. Now, we've seen that word before, to quicken, 
in the scriptures means to make alive. So it's the same light that gives life to your understanding. Mm -hmm. In verse 12, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, the light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God who sitteth upon his throne, who is in the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. Wow. These are some of my favorite verses in Scripture. This notion of what light is, how it relates to things like truth and actual physical light, but truth and understanding and life and law, it's incredible. There's, I guess, a lot that I would want to say about this, and especially as I relate to what light does in relationship to being a visual artist. But maybe let's suffice it to say, think for a minute about what ways light is such a great metaphorical analog for all the things that he's talking about here. I ask students sometimes, if you light a match, how much darkness does it take to smother that light? A house full of darkness? What if you were in the middle of a giant stadium filled with darkness? Would that be enough to put out that light? And of course, the answer is no amount of darkness has any power over light because darkness is the absence of and light is the substance of. So that idea of light being these things, it's physical, it's energy, it's power, it's illumination, but it's also spiritually, it's understanding, it's life, it's law. What a great gratitude we should feel for having this be able to replace the darkness that would otherwise be there without this light. Think of examples of how these manifestations of the light of Christ influence you on a daily basis, your ability to see. Now, I know that one may seem obvious, but it's an interesting notion that even if you are a painter, what you're doing is painting light. You don't really paint the absence of light. Pretty much everything a painter is doing is looking at all the different ways that light affects something. Whether it's bouncing onto it, whether it's directly on it, whether it's reflected. And of course, shadows being the absence of light, there's really nothing happening there. But it's all these different layers of the way that light helps to create shape and form on objects. So that's really cool. And that's how we see things. The ability to learn and recognize truth is another thing daily that the light of Christ influences us. And of course, the growth of plants and animals that provide us with food and clothing, the ability to know the difference between good and evil, this is all contained in that notion of light. I just find it really exciting. Well, the absence of light is really one of the only things that I can paint, so I'm just gonna <laughs> stick with that. Nice. So from the Institute Manual, we get a little bit more clarity on the concept of the Light of Christ. This comes from President Joseph Fielding Smith from his book, Doctrines of Salvation, Volume 1. He says, quote, This Light of Christ is not a personage. It has no body. I do not know what it is as far as substance is concerned, but it fills the immensity of space and emanates from God. Unless a man had the blessings that come from this spirit, his mind would not be quickened. There would be no vegetation grow. The worlds would not stay in their orbits 
because it is through this spirit of truth, this light of truth, according to this revelation, he's referring to section 88, that all these things are done, end quote. Wonderful. It's a beautiful thing. You know, there's another great image of that that I love. It's the notion that darkness has no power in the light. It must flee from light. And what a great motivation that should give us to fill ourselves with as much light as we're willing to receive. Let's go on in verse 15. And the spirit and the body are the soul of man. And the resurrection from the dead is the resurrection of the soul. And the redemption of the soul is through him that quickeneth all things, in whose bosom it is decreed that the poor and the meek of the earth shall inherit it. Therefore, it must needs be sanctified from all unrighteousness. Now, we've just hit a pronoun here at the beginning of this verse, and we're going to keep using it. It's a tricky one. It's referring here the it. Therefore, it is referring to the earth. And that's the it that's referred to in the end of 17. The meek of the earth shall inherit it, the earth. Therefore, it, the earth, must needs be sanctified from all unrighteousness, that it, the earth, may be prepared for the celestial glory. Now, there is a really unique doctrine declared in verse 15, and I don't know that we necessarily reflect on this a lot as members of the church. When most Christians refer to the soul, they refer to the spirit, whereas when we refer to the soul, we consider the soul, the spirit, and its body. From the Institute Manual, we get some further clarification from this from President Russell M. Nelson. This is from the October 1998 General Conference, where he says, quote, We are dual beings. Each soul is comprised of body and spirit, both of which emanate from God. A firm understanding of body and spirit will shape our thoughts and deeds for good. Spirit and body, when joined together, become a living soul of supernal worth. Indeed, we are children of God, physically and spiritually. The gift of a physical body is priceless. Without it, we cannot attain a fullness of joy. How should these truths influence our personal behavior? We will regard our body as a temple of our very own. We will control our diet and exercise for physical fitness. Should not equal attention be paid to spiritual fitness? Just as physical strength requires exercise, so spiritual strength requires effort. Who are we? We are children of God. Our potential is unlimited. Our inheritance is sacred. End quote. Wow. What a great perspective. Wow. I love that. Going on in these verses, President Nelson really helped bring it home, but we're learning about the redemption of the soul, our potential. But what of the earth? We began talking about it in 18. Going on in verse 19, For after it, the earth, hath fulfilled the measure of its creation, it shall be crowned with glory, even with the presence of God the Father, that bodies who are of the celestial kingdom may possess it, the earth, forever and ever. For for this intent was it made and created, and for this intent are they sanctified. 
The Institute Manual offers some additional insight to this idea. It says, To inherit the earth means to inherit the celestial kingdom. At the fall of Adam and Eve, the earth was changed from having a paradisiacal or terrestrial glory and became a telestial world. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. That's from the Articles of Faith number 10. Following that millennial period, the earth will again undergo a change and become new, this time as a celestial world. But what determines the degree of glory that a person receives in the resurrection? Let's go on in verse 21. And they who are not sanctified through the law, which I have given unto you, even the law of Christ, must inherit another kingdom, even that of a terrestrial kingdom, or that of a telestial kingdom. Notice right away in 21, those who are not sanctified through the law, that's a choice. Back to 22, for he who is not able to abide the law of a celestial kingdom cannot abide a celestial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a terrestrial kingdom cannot abide a terrestrial glory. And he who cannot abide the law of a telestial kingdom cannot abide a telestial glory. Therefore, he is not meet for a kingdom of glory. Therefore, he must abide a kingdom which is not a kingdom of glory. And again, verily I say unto you, the earth abideth the law of a celestial kingdom, for it fulfilleth the measure of its creation, and transgresseth not the law. Wherefore it shall be sanctified, yea, notwithstanding it shall die, it shall be quickened again, and shall abide the power by which it is quickened, and the righteous shall inherit it. Mm, a very powerful image. From the Institute Manual, we have from President Russell M. Nelson a quote. This comes from October 1993 General Conference, where he says, quote, Each of you will be judged according to your individual works and the desires of your hearts. Your eventual placement in the celestial, terrestrial, or telestial kingdom will not be determined by chance. The Lord has prescribed unchanging requirements for each, you can know what the scriptures teach and pattern your lives accordingly, end quote. So we've been given the instructions on what we need to do to abide a celestial law, and that's what we need to do. The Webster's 1828 Dictionary offers a definition that might be helpful for us to understand that word abide since it's used so frequently at each level of glory. It means to wait for or to be prepared for. So this notion that he who cannot abide a particular law seems to have everything to do with us. What are we waiting for or being prepared for? Something to think about. Good point. So going back to the Revelation, verse 27, for notwithstanding they die, they also shall rise again, a spiritual body. They who are of a celestial spirit shall receive the same body, which was a natural body. Even ye shall receive your bodies, and your glory shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened. Ye who are quickened by a portion of the celestial glory shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. And they who are quickened by a portion of the terrestrial glory 
shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. And also they who are quickened by a portion of the telestial glory shall then receive of the same, even a fullness. And they who remain shall also be quickened. Nevertheless, they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive. Interesting. Because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. Great emphasis. Willing. What are we willing to receive? And if we're not willing to receive the celestial kingdom, we will be granted whatever kingdom or state of being that we were willing to receive. Yeah. And what a merciful God. The Institute Manual has a quote from the 1917 April General Conference from President Joseph Fielding Smith, where he explains the nature of a spiritual body. He says, quote, After the resurrection from the dead, our bodies will be spiritual bodies, but they will be bodies that are tangible, bodies that have been purified, but they will nevertheless be bodies of flesh and bones. But they will no longer be quickened by blood, but quickened by the Spirit, which is eternal. And they shall become immortal, and shall never die. So it's important to understand the difference between our spirit bodies, which are just spirit, Mm -hmm. and our spiritual bodies, which are our physical bodies, quickened by the Spirit. Well said. Let's go on in verse 34. And again, verily I say unto you, that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. That which breaketh a law and abideth not by law, but seeketh to become a law unto itself, and willeth to abide in sin, and altogether abideth in sin, cannot be sanctified by law, neither by mercy, justice, nor judgment. Therefore they must remain filthy still. All kingdoms have a law given. I love that. That is a great phrase and a great clarification that all things are governed by a law. And the problem comes when we attempt to become a law unto ourselves. Mm. Think about a lot of the things that we know we're not supposed to do. And think of mistakes you may have made in your own life. Could that be said of that? Could it be said that you became a law unto yourself or attempted to? There's something else I was thinking about while you were talking, and that's the notion of who is our lawgiver? Is it us? Is it our friends? Is it social media? It's a good thing to recognize who we are listening to. Who is our lawgiver? I hope I'm not my lawgiver because I don't know enough. <laughs> yes. How amazing that is to have a lawgiver who knows all. So let's look at the qualities of people who will be drawn to the celestial kingdom, abide the celestial kingdom. Going in verse 40, For intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence, wisdom receiveth wisdom, truth embraceth truth, virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light, mercy hath compassion on mercy, and claimeth her own, Justice continueth its course and claimeth its own. Judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne and governeth and executeth all things. 
He comprehendeth all things, and all things are before him, and all things are round about him. And he is above all things, and in all things, and is through all things, and is round about all things. And all things are by him, and of him, even God, forever and ever. Beautiful. I love that image, that notion of light cleaving unto light, truth embracing truth, wisdom receiving wisdom. I love that. It says something, I think, about the kind of people we're trying to be. Are we trying to be people who are full of wisdom and intelligence and virtue and light? In which case, we will cleave to things that are like that. I can relate to times in my life where I wasn't, I don't know if even willing is the right word. I simply couldn't embrace certain things that I knew other people already did. I just wasn't there yet. And maybe that's something to remember. If you don't feel like you're that person yet, then don't worry about that if that's your goal, if that's what you're striving for, if that's what you're trying to become. Nobody should be judging you, including yourself, because you're not baked yet. Just keep going. Right. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the spiritual exercise that President Nelson was talking about earlier? Right. We need to exercise our faith and wisdom, etc. Yep. Absolutely true. And we'll learn more about that as we go. But let's take a look here in verse 42. Just another re-emphasis of that notion that he is a creator that governs all things by law. And again, verily I say unto you, he hath given a law unto all things by which they move in their times and their seasons. Now let's go on to verse 46, where the Lord is introducing a parable. He says, Unto what shall I liken these kingdoms, that ye may understand? Let's jump into 51. Behold, I will liken these kingdoms unto a man having a field. And he sent forth his servants into the field to dig in the field. And he said unto the first, Go ye, and labor in the field. And in the first hour I will come unto you, and ye shall behold the joy of my countenance. And he said unto the second, Go ye also into the field. And in the second hour I will visit you with the joy of my countenance. And also unto the third, saying, I will visit you. And unto the fourth, and so on unto the twelfth. Now, as the rest of the verses go on through verse 60, in the parable, the Lord of the field visited each of his servants when it was their turn. Each servant received the light of the countenance of their Lord, every man in his hour like it says in verse 58. Going on in 61, Therefore unto this parable I will liken all these kingdoms and the inhabitants thereof, every kingdom in its hour and in its time and in its season, even according to the decree which God hath made. There is a powerful perspective that's given in that parable that we lose sight of sometimes. We're very earth-centric people. From the Institute Manual, there's a really neat quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell. It's a talk that he gave at a church education system conference in August 13, 2002. He said, quote, As to the Lord's continuing role amid his vast creations, so little has been revealed. There are inklings, however, about kingdoms and inhabitants. Nevertheless, we do not worship a one-planet God, end quote. What a statement. Yeah. Wow. We lose sight of that sometimes, but he has worlds without number. Yeah. 
interesting. And we're going to have to leave it there. There's not a whole lot more to know about it. Right. But let's look at another scriptural gem here in verse 63. Draw near unto me, and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently, and ye shall find me. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Beautiful. The Institute Manual has a quote that explores this idea from the October 1997 General Conference. This is from Sister Sherry Dew. She says, quote, There are no disclaimers or exceptions in his invitation. She's referring here to verse 63. We are the ones who determine whether or not we will come unto him. The drawing near, seeking, asking, and knocking are up to us. And the more we know about the Lord, meaning the more we experience his mercy, devotion, and willingness to guide us, even when we may not feel worthy of his direction, the more confident we become that he will respond to our petitions. There are many ways to draw near, seek, ask, and knock. If, for example, your prayers offered to Heavenly Father in the name of Christ have become a little casual, would you recommit yourself to meaningful prayer? offered in an unrushed solitude and with a repentant heart? If you have not yet come to appreciate the peace and power of temple worship, would you partake of the ordinances of the house of the Lord as often as your circumstances allow? If you have not yet found that immersion in the scriptures increases your sensitivity to the Spirit, would you consider incorporating the Word of God into your life more consistently? Tonight, would be a wonderful time to begin. These efforts and many others increase our connection with Jesus Christ. As our testimony of him expands and matures, we begin to care more about life forever than life today. And we have no desire but to do what he needs us to do and to live as he has asked us to live." Unquote. That's awesome. Thank you, Sister Dew. And along that line, let's take a look at verse 64. Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, it shall be given unto you that is expedient for you. And if ye ask anything that is not expedient for you, it shall turn unto your condemnation. Hmm. From the Institute Manual, I have a great quote from Elder Richard G. Scott in which he expounds upon this further. This is from April 2007 General Conference. He says, quote, Heavenly Father will always hear your prayers and will invariably answer them. President David O. McKay testified, It is true that the answers to our prayers may not always come as direct and at the time, nor in the manner we anticipate, but they do come, and at a time and in a manner best for the interests of him who offers the supplication. Be thankful that sometimes God lets you struggle for a long time before that answer comes. Your character will grow. Your faith will increase. It is so hard when sincere prayer about something you desire very much is not answered the way you want. It is difficult to understand why your exercise of deep and sincere faith from an obedient life does not grant the desired result. The Savior taught, Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, it shall be given unto you that is expedient for you. At times, it is difficult to recognize what is best or expedient for you over time. 
your life will be easier when you accept that what God does in your life is for your eternal good. Some misunderstandings about prayer can be clarified by realizing that the scriptures define principles for effective prayer, but they do not assure when a response will be given, end quote. This, by the way, is one of my favorite talks on prayer. It's called Using the Supernal Gift of Prayer. So thank you, Elder Scott, for that. It's important to remember that our Father in Heaven knows more than we do, knows what's best for us, and loves us and wants the best for us. Yes. Yes, he does. Let's go on to verse 67. And if your eye be single to my glory, your whole bodies shall be filled with light. And there shall be no darkness in you. And that body which is filled with light comprehendeth all things. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God. And the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you. And it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. Notice that great comparison in verse 67. If your eye be single, how do we do that? How do we get our eye to be single so that we can be filled with light? Well, verse 68, sanctify yourselves that your minds become single. So that, again, has to do with our choice. But as we make that choice to access God by sanctifying ourselves, being true to our covenants, doing the things we're supposed to do, get the gospel down into our hearts, well, then we begin to unify our will, our minds, our eyes with God and be able to be filled with his light. The Institute Manual has a quote from then-President Dieter F. Uchtdorf from the October 2009 General Conference. He says, quote, As we draw near to Heavenly Father, we become more holy. And as we become more holy, we will overcome disbelief and our souls will be filled with his blessed light. As we align our lives with this supernal light, it leads us out of darkness and toward greater light. This greater light leads to the unspeakable ministerings of the Holy Spirit, and the veil between heaven and earth can become thin. Hmm. Looking ahead to verse 70, we're getting a direct command now from the Lord. Verse 70, Tarry ye, tarry ye in this place, and call a solemn assembly, even of those who are the first laborers in this last kingdom. From the Institute Manual, there's a quote from Elder David B. Haight. This is from October 1994 General Conference. He says, quote, A solemn assembly, as the name implies, denotes a sacred, sober, and reverent occasion when the saints assemble under the direction of the First Presidency. Solemn assemblies are used for three purposes— the dedication of temples, special instruction to priesthood leaders, and sustaining a new president of the church, end quote. You know, fun fact, Elder David B. Haight has lived the longest of any apostle since the Restoration. He lived to be 98 years old. Whoa. President Nelson, of course, is on his way to breaking that record, <laughs> and we hope he does. Yeah, we hope he does. Wonderful. 
Let's take a look in verse 73. Behold, I will hasten my work in its time. That's an important distinction. President Thomas S. Monson, from an article in the June 2014 Enzyme, talks about how this promise has been fulfilled in our day through missionary work and temple service. He says, Do you realize that the restored church was 98 years old before it had 100 stakes? But less than 30 years later, the church had organized its second 100 stakes. And only eight years after that, the church had more than 300 stakes. Today, we are thousands of stakes strong. Why is this growth taking place at an accelerated rate? Is it because we are better known? Is it because we have lovely chapels? These things are important, but the reason the church is growing today is that the Lord indicated it would. In the Doctrine and Covenants, he said, Behold, I will hasten my work in its time. We as spirit children of our Heavenly Father were sent to earth at this time that we might participate in hastening this great work. The Lord has never, to my knowledge, indicated that his work is confined to mortality. Rather, his work embraces eternity. I believe he is hastening his work in the spirit world. Hmm. Now, this is such an interesting idea because I remember charting out as a young missionary membership in the church, starting with six original members and charting every year what church membership was. I'll show you the chart here. Look at how long it took for the church to get its first million members. All the way to 1947. Yeah, that's amazing. And then look what happened. Look at that spike. It's incredible what's happening. It makes me think of a news story that I was listening to, and this was maybe 20 years ago. Pew Research had put out a study that was examining church growth, and for the first time, we saw Protestant denominations increasing faster than Catholic denominations. And so on the news program, they had a Protestant on there who was talking about it, and the interviewer was asking him why he thought that Protestants were growing so quickly. And he said, well, it's a lot to do with the truth, you know, that whereas we're preaching truth and so forth, that it, people are gravitating to that and so forth and went on about this. And then right before the commercial break, they said, oh, well, you know, the Mormons are growing faster than the Protestants. So what do you think that means? And he said, oh, well, they just have a really good ad campaign. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, it is an amazing thing. You talk about the chart and you see how long it took for us to get a million members, but so much shorter to get two million members. And you should realize that for the last several decades, we have been growing at a rate of a million members every three to four years. And that's new converts to the church. That's not children born of record or this kind of thing. It's not that we've got so many children or this kind of thing. These are new members of the church. Yeah, and I should be clear, this isn't a race. You know, I don't mean for us to be cheering that, hey, we're winning, because it's irrelevant whether what we are in comparison to others. Are we doing our best to be filled with light? Are we doing our best to share that light, to hasten this work, and to be on the Lord's side as we're doing it? And it's important to recognize that we agree with the Protestant commentator's assessment of the accelerated growth. We just read the Revelation Truth embraceth truth. Intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. Virtue loveth virtue. Light cleaveth unto light. 
And we do testify that this is the fullness of the gospel on earth, which means it's the fullness of that light that's available right now. And it's something powerful, but again, not a race. We should be working to do the Lord's work the way he wants it done. Now, remember that the Lord gave this revelation, section 88, to a group of priesthood holders who had prayed to know the Lord's will concerning the establishment of Zion. The Lord referred to this group of priesthood holders as the first laborers in his kingdom, like we read in verse 70, and commanded them to organize and attend a school to prepare themselves to preach the gospel among all nations. Let's go on in verse 74. And I give unto you who are the first laborers in this last kingdom, a commandment that you assemble yourselves together to organize yourselves and prepare yourselves and sanctify yourselves. Yea, purify your hearts and cleanse your hands and your feet before me that I may make you clean. Look for what the Lord then commands these priesthood holders to do to prepare to teach others. Starting in verse 76, also, I give unto you a commandment that ye shall continue in prayer and fasting from this time forth. Now, look going forward what the Lord commands these priesthood holders to do as they meet together. Going to verse 77. And I give unto you a commandment that you shall teach one another the doctrine of the kingdom. Teach ye diligently, and my grace shall attend you. This is something that we've touched on a little bit already. Remember that all of this light that we're supposed to bring into ourselves, to change ourselves, we're not to do it on our own. Christ's grace is key to all of this. His grace needs to attend us if we're going to change, or in this case, teach diligently. So verse 78, teach ye diligently and my grace shall attend you, that you may be instructed more perfectly in theory, in principle, in doctrine in the law of the gospel, in all things that pertain unto the kingdom of God that are expedient for you to understand, of things both in heaven and in the earth and under the earth, things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations and the judgments which are on the land, and a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms, that ye may be prepared in all things when I shall send you again to magnify the calling whereunto I have called you and the mission with which I have commissioned you. Nice. So this is an overview of things for them to learn. It's not only spiritual things. It's not only yeah. the law of the gospel, but of things in heaven and earth and under the earth. So these are studies about astronomy and earth sciences, things which have been, things which are, history and wars and the perplexities of nations, different cultures, different governments. All of these things prepare for the preaching of the gospel. I think, too, things which must shortly come to pass not only would most relevantly apply, I would think, to prophecies, but pay attention to what's happening in your world. Know the issues. Be educated on what's happening. What a great commission that as we teach one another diligently, the Lord will help us understand his truths more perfectly. And by teaching one another, we can prepare to share the gospel with others. 
The Institute Manual includes a quote from President Henry B. Eyring from an article in the Enzyme, October 2002. It says this, quote, It is clear that our first priority should go to spiritual learning. For us, reading the scriptures would come for us before reading history books. Prayer would come before memorizing those Spanish verbs. A temple recommend would be worth more to us than standing first in our graduating class. But it is also clear that spiritual learning would not replace our drive for secular learning. The Lord clearly values what you will find in that history book and in a text on political theory. Remember his words. He wants you to know things which have been, things which are, things which must shortly come to pass, things which are at home, things which are abroad, the wars and the perplexities of the nations. And he favors not only Spanish verbs, but the study of geography and demography. You remember that his educational charter requires that we have a knowledge also of countries and of kingdoms. There is also an endorsement for questions we study in the sciences. It is clear that putting spiritual learning first does not relieve us from learning secular things. On the contrary, it gives our secular learning purpose and motivates us to work harder at it. That's awesome. I love that. You know, it's difficult to think because in many ways our learning is so segregated in the different types of learning, you know, spiritual, philosophical, and secular. But learning didn't used to have, at least in the Christian West, it didn't have that kind of separation. You know, it was monks that began to develop the science of genetics and science in general. The rules of science we use today were designed by religious people that wanted to know how God did the amazing things he did. So it should all be connected. Agreed. And for those who would submit that they are incompatible, I would ask on what basis? It seems like these verses are very clear that all truth is in one. Absolutely. We are all searching for truth in different ways. So let's take a look at a very famous verse in this section, verse 81. Behold, I sent you out to testify and warn the people, and it becometh every man who hath been warned to warn his neighbor. Mm-hmm. From the Institute Manual, we have an expansion on this admonition from the April 1985 General Conference from President Ezra Taft Benson, who says, quote, We all share this great responsibility of missionary work. We cannot avoid it. Let no man or woman think that because of where we live— or because of our place in society, or because of our occupation or status, we are exempt from this responsibility. Membership in the Lord's Church is a gift and a blessing which the Lord has given us in mortality, and he expects us to share that blessing with those who do not have it. End quote. Wonderful. So there you go. Warn your neighbor. And what a great responsibility. I mean, great, like, wonderful. And remember, Stop trying to do it alone. The Lord should be part of all things related to his work. Well, and that covers an awful lot. Let's go on in verse 87. Notice that after your testimony, what testimony comes next? In verse 87, For not many days hence, and the earth shall tremble and reel to and fro as a drunken man, and the sun shall hide his face and shall refuse to give light. And the moon shall be bathed in blood, and the stars shall become exceedingly angry, and shall cast themselves down as a fig that falleth 
from off a fig tree. And after your testimony cometh wrath and indignation upon the people. For after your testimony cometh the testimony of earthquakes that shall cause groanings in the midst of her, and men shall fall upon the ground and shall not be able to stand. And also cometh the testimony of the voice of thunderings, and the voice of lightnings, and the voice of tempests, and the voice of the waves of the sea, heaving themselves beyond their bounds. And all things shall be in commotion, and surely men's hearts shall fail them, for fear shall come upon all people. And angels shall fly through the midst of heaven, crying with a loud voice, sounding the trump of God, saying, Prepare ye, prepare ye, O inhabitants of the earth, for the judgment of our God is come. Behold, and lo, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. And immediately there shall appear a great sign in heaven, and all people shall see it together. That's amazing. And I love the comparison of your testimony and then the testimony of these great and terrible disasters. It's like the testimony of the earth and the testimony of the heavens. Right. It reminds me of studying in the Book of Mormon last year of prophecies given by Nephi and Moroni saying, if you don't believe my words, understand that at one point you'll kind of have to believe them. You will be shown by power and great glory that they are true. Yeah. Now, that sign mentioned in verse 93, that's interesting. There shall appear a great sign in heaven and all people shall see it together. From the Institute Manual, there are a couple of quotes that go into this in a little bit more detail. From the Prophet Joseph Smith, this comes from the Manual Teachings of Presidents of the Church, Joseph Smith. It says, quote, Then will appear one grand sign of the Son of Man in heaven. But what will the world do? They will say, It is a planet, a comet, etc. But the Son of Man will come as the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, which will be as the light of the morning cometh out of the east. End quote. It's great imagery. Now, after sharing that declaration by the prophet Joseph Smith, Elder Bruce R. McConkie, in his book, The Millennial Messiah, adds, quote, All people shall see it together. It shall spread over all the earth as the morning light. For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Surely this is that of which Isaiah said, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Surely this is that of which our revelation speaks. Prepare for the revelation which is to come. When the veil of the covering of my temple in my tabernacle, which hideth the earth, shall be taken off, and all flesh shall see me together. Surely this is that day of which Zechariah prophesied, The Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee, and it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. End quote. Amazing. It's an incredible thing to think about, to ponder. When will it happen? Who knows? 
Our job is to be ready as if it would happen tomorrow. Now, in verses 97 through 116, the Lord revealed that the dead will be resurrected in order of their righteousness. Those who are resurrected first will inherit the celestial kingdom. This is something that we've talked about in the past, but there's a quote here from President Joseph Fielding Smith from the Institute Manual. This is from his book, Doctrines of Salvation. He taught, quote, while there was a general resurrection of the righteous at the time Christ arose from the dead, it is customary for us to speak of the resurrection of the righteous at the second coming of Christ as the first resurrection. It is the first to us. The Lord has promised that at the time of his second coming, the graves will be opened and the just shall come forth to reign with him on the earth for a thousand years. I would add that it might be helpful to think of the first resurrection as something that is currently happening. Right. We are in the first resurrection. But it sounds like there will be a particular great event for it. Now, those who are resurrected second will inherit the terrestrial kingdom. This is in verse 99. Those who will inherit the telestial kingdom will be resurrected after the millennium. That's in verse 100, 101. Finally, those who, quote, remain filthy, those who have lived on the earth and have become sons of perdition, will be resurrected and cast into outer darkness, in verse 102. At the end of the thousand years of peace, known as the millennium, Satan and his followers will come to battle against the people of God, led by Michael, or Adam. Satan and his followers will be defeated and cast into outer darkness. Now, this section of verses, there's a great ending, I think, in verse 117. Therefore, in other words, all this stuff that I've just said, here's a concluding statement. Therefore, verily I say unto you, my friends, call your solemn assembly as I have commanded you. <laughs> all of this kind of sets the stage. Why did I tell you to call your solemn assembly? This relates to the school of the prophets. This, all of this that I'm telling you, from the resurrection to the glories to the destructions to the spreading of the gospel to all the stuff that's in the wrapping up period of these last days. So because of that, do what I asked you to do. Right. Now, we're going to further explore this idea of the school of the prophets. But as we lead up to it, look for principles about learning as we study these remaining verses. That's an important focus on this revelation. Here's another favorite verse from this section, verse 118. And as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom. Yea, seek ye out of the best books words of wisdom. Seek learning, even by study and also by faith. Nice. From the Institute Manual, there's a quote from Elder David A. Bednar from his article in the September 2007 enzyme, Seek Learning by Faith, where he says, quote, a learner exercising agency by acting in accordance with correct principles opens his or her heart to the Holy Ghost and invites his teaching, testifying power, and confirming witness. Learning by faith requires spiritual, mental, and physical exertion and not just passive reception. It is in the sincerity and consistency of our faith-inspired action that we indicate to our Heavenly Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, our willingness to learn and receive instruction from the Holy Ghost. The learning I am describing reaches far beyond mere cognitive comprehension and the retaining and recalling of information. 
The type of learning to which I am referring causes us to put off the natural man, to change our hearts, to be converted unto the Lord, and to never fall away. Learning by faith requires both the heart and a willing mind. Learning by faith is the result of the Holy Ghost carrying the power of the Word of God both unto and into the heart. Learning by faith cannot be transferred from an instructor to a student through a lecture, a demonstration, or an experiential exercise. Rather, a student must exercise faith and act in order to obtain the knowledge for himself or herself, end quote. Yeah, so important. We do live at a time where it's really easy to just have knowledge for knowledge's sake. I don't know if any of the rest of you do this, but I watch on YouTube both a lot of cooking shows and a lot of home repair shows. <laughs> this does not correspond to how much cooking slash home repairs I actually do. They probably would have much more impact on me if I acted on what I was learning. That's a tricky thing. We have the world's knowledge at our fingertips. Right. How do we focus that and how do we apply that? Yes, that's a good question to keep asking ourselves. Let's go on to verse 119. The instruction here is to organize yourselves, prepare every needful thing, and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. Now, in response to the commandment to build the house described in verse 119, the saints eventually built the Kirtland Temple. While the temple was under construction, the School of the Prophets met in the upper room of Newell K. Whitney's store in Kirtland. So, ask yourself this. How might the council in verse 119 also relate to the place where the brethren met for the School of the Prophets? Or to our homes? Or to our personal efforts to study in school? This does have direct connection to the Kirtland Temple but not only to the Kirtland Temple. And going along that line, from the Institute Manual, there's a quote from Elder Gary E. Stevenson from the April 2009 General Conference, where he tells us, quote, In order to keep the temple and those who attend it sacred and worthy, the Lord has established standards through his servants, the prophets. We may be well advised to consider together in family council standards for our homes to keep them sacred and to allow them to be a house of the Lord. The admonition to establish a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God, provides divine insight into the type of home the Lord would have us build. Doing such begins the construction of a spiritual mansion in which we may all reside, regardless of our worldly circumstance, end quote. That, that's beautiful. Good admonition. So going on in verse 121, let's take a look at how the Lord expected the brethren in the school of the prophets to conduct themselves. And I'm curious, as we read this, which counsel stands out to you personally? Verse 121, Therefore, Cease from all your light speeches, from all laughter, from all your lustful desires, from all your pride and light-mindedness, and from all your wicked doings. 
Think for a minute. Why might refraining from doing these things in spiritual settings be helpful in our efforts to learn things that are sacred? It's worth considering. Let's move on to verse 122. Appoint among yourselves a teacher, and let not all be spokesmen at once, but let one speak at a time, and let all listen unto his sayings, that when all have spoken, that all may be edified of all, and that every man may have an equal privilege. See that ye love one another, cease to be covetous, learn to impart one to another as the gospel requires, cease to be idle, cease to be unclean, cease to find fault one with another, cease to sleep longer than is needful, retire to thy bed early, that ye may not be weary, Arise early, that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated. And above all things, clothe yourselves with the bond of charity, as with a mantle, which is the bond of perfectness and peace. Pray always, that ye may not faint until I come. Behold and lo, I will come quickly, and receive you unto myself. Amen. And that's the end of the revelation that was received over December 27th and 28th. Mm -hmm. That is drinking from the spiritual fire hose, I might add. (laughs) That is just a ton of revelation just in that portion. But we're not done yet. Yes. So before we move on, which of the behaviors mentioned in these verses could we either adopt or give up? so that we can better learn the gospel and be edified together. That's a great exercise, not only for our personal study, but it might make for an interesting discussion with your family or class. Now, in those last verses where we talk about the things that we can do to better prepare ourselves spiritually, especially when we enter the temple, we have a quote from the Institute Manual from Elder L. Lionel Kendrick at the time of the 70 in the April 2001 General Conference where he says, quote, When we enter the temple, we should leave the world behind. We should feel what it would be like when we enter the presence of the Lord. We may consider what thoughts we would think and what communications we would have in his holy presence. If we can catch the vision of this eventual event, it will help us in preparing to enter his presence and in leaving the world behind as we enter his temple. As we enter the temple grounds, we should leave our worldly thoughts behind and focus on the sacred responsibilities that are ours as we serve in the house of the Lord. The Savior has given us great counsel concerning our communications in the temple. He said, Therefore cease from all your light speeches, from all laughter, from all your pride and light-mindedness. Just as we leave our worldly thoughts behind us as we enter the temple grounds, we should also leave our worldly discussions behind. It is inappropriate to discuss matters of business, pleasure, or current events in the temple. It is important not only what we speak in the temple, but also the manner in which we speak. We must always speak in soft and subdued tones in all places in the temple. End quote. Wonderful. Well, let's take a look in the next verses. We have instructions starting in verse 127 for the school of the prophets. In verses 127 through 134, 
It describes the teacher's role in establishing a spiritual learning environment in the school of the prophets. Take, for example, verse 130. And when he, the teacher, cometh into the house of God, for he should be first in the house, behold, this is beautiful, that he may be an example. Now, one of the reasons I love that verse is it sets the stage that the teacher is to be an example. He is to be first, be prepared. You can read the verses to look at this description, but he sets the stage. And I love that the Lord describes it as beautiful. So going forward, take a look at what you think about this salutation from the teacher. Right. So in verse 132, we get a unique description of what's to be done when students come into the room. Verse 132, And when any shall come in after him, let the teacher arise, and with uplifted hands to heaven, yea, even directly, salute his brother or brethren with these words, Art thou a brother or brethren? I salute you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in token or remembrance of the everlasting covenant, in which covenant I receive you to fellowship, in a determination that is fixed, immovable, and unchangeable, to be your friend and brother, through the grace of God, in the bonds of love, to walk in all the commandments of God blameless, in thanksgiving forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Now, first of all, that's going to take a while if you have a large class. It is, but can you imagine how could anyone have ill feelings toward anybody if they said that? And maybe elements of that greeting we could be thinking in our mind as we greet one another. Right. In fact, skipping to verse 135, And he that cometh in and is faithful before me and is a brother, or if they be brethren, they shall salute the president or teacher with uplifted hands to heaven with this same prayer and covenant, or by saying amen in token of the same. So that would perhaps make it a little more efficient. <laughs> Verse 136, Behold, verily I say unto you, this is an ensample unto you for a salutation to one another in the house of God, in the school of the prophets. And ye are called to do this by prayer, and thanksgiving, as the Spirit shall give utterance in all your doings in the house of the Lord, in the school of the prophets, that it may become a sanctuary, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit to your edification. How important that is to set the stage for gospel learning. You know, we do that in several ways today, in prayer and in hymn and in devotional. This is important to prepare for spiritual learning and how important it is for us to celebrate the bond of fellowship through the everlasting covenant, the bonds of love, all those words of 133. What an amazing greeting. And to me, it's a great example of the attitude we should have or strive to have for one another. You know, we talked about spiritual exercise earlier in the lesson. I wonder if this would be considered a warm-up. Mm. You know how when you do physical exercise, at times you need to warm up certain areas of your body, certain muscles. Otherwise, you can do some damage or work against what you're trying to build. Yeah. Perhaps this should be considered a spiritual warming up. I like it. I was thinking of it in terms of choir, too, you know, or the orchestra when everybody warms up and tunes in to get ready to play. Yeah, that works, too. Now, the Institute Manual has some more information from Revelations in Context on the School of the Prophets. It says... 
Unlike a conventional school with semesters and set schedules in a fixed location, the School of the Prophets was intermittent and moved around. In farming communities such as Kirtland, winter months provided more time for such activities as schooling. The first session lasted about three months and closed in April. Subsequent sessions, called variously the School of the Prophets, the School of Mine Apostles, and Elders' School, were held that summer in Missouri and again in Kirtland in fall of 1834 and winter 1835-36 in the church's printing office or in the attic floor of the unfinished Kirtland Temple. So the last few verses, remember the verses 138 to 141, were added, describe the ordinance of the washing of the feet. From the article in Revelations in Context, we are told, quote, to become clean from the blood of this generation and to set themselves apart from the world, the elders participated in ritual washings. After each elder washed his own face, hands, and feet, Joseph Smith washed the feet of each, following the example set by Jesus in John chapter 13, verses 4 through 17, and instructions in Doctrine and Covenants 88, verses 138 to 41. Joseph washed the feet of each new member of the school and repeated the ceremony at other meetings of the School of the Prophets. Later washings and anointings, including foot washing, were part of preparations for the solemn assembly held in the newly dedicated Kirtland Temple, and these washings featured prominently in the solemn assembly itself. End quote. Well, that's the end of section 88. Wow. For real this time. Wow. As you look back on, well, just even this instructions, I'm still thinking about the instructions to the teachers and the students, how each have a responsibility. Think how we can develop a determination to love those that we learn the gospel with, which is pretty much everybody we encounter. We're fellow students in this amazing resource. May we do more to help and reach out and listen and learn and prepare to really absorb, open up our hearts to bring in light. It's up to us as the students. How much are we willing to abide and prepare ourselves to abide even more next time we study? Continue to seek light, truth, wisdom. These things cling to each other and will breed more. Yep. Keep reading the scriptures. We have so much more to discuss, and we'll look forward to discussing more of it with you in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>